Bankers Star in a tale of two reports. And what are we defending in Ukraine? It's not democracy. Coming up on today's report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 6th of October 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. On today's show, we're going to be discussing how, as the banking system's imploding, certain interesting truths are coming to the surface. And we're going to spend a bit of time talking about the reality of the situation on the ground in Ukraine to see what it is the West is actually supporting there. Now, don't forget to hit the like button if you get something out of the show and subscribe and ring the notification bell so you're alerted of other updates and share this as widely as you can. Comment underneath to uh, get the word around. Now, before we go into the first topic, uh, Robbie, you've got a bit of an update on uh, various events this week around uh, getting Assange home. Yeah, so there's a, it's a week of action this week culminating on Saturday. Uh, around the world um, in a big day of action. And in the UK, it's going to be a... Um, people are going to hold hands around the um, UK Parliament, Westminster, um, to put pressure on the British government. Now, in Australia, most of the action is here in Melbourne, which is Julian Assange's hometown. So the Melbourne for Assange group has been organising all these activities. The other day I went along to the uh, vigil for Julian Assange outside the British consulate because, of course, they're the ones holding him and can let him go. Um, we're shooting the show earlier this week, uh, Elisa, because tonight there's an event at the Cinema Nova in Carlton. By the time people are watching this, it'll already be, be, be gone, but I'll be attending that. Um, Julian Assange's father, John Shipton, and David McBride, the Australian war crimes whistleblower, will be there. Um, and they're, they're, they're showing a film of David McBride's case because it's, it's quite similar, right? He blew the whistle on, on real war crimes and now he faces 50 years in jail for doing that. His secret trial starts in a few weeks' time. And it's going to be a secret trial. And this, you know, when we go through the Ukraine stuff later, remember this part of the discussion, right? We pretend we're a democracy and believe in due process and, and uh, the rule of law, mm. etc. And we've just... In, in, the things that Assange exposed show we've trashed that, Right. Um, so we've got no moral authority whatsoever. On Saturday, there's going to be a, a holding hands around the Yarra River to send a message as well. And what, what, essentially what we're trying to do is send the message to the British that Albanese should be sending, mm. right? And, and effectively put, put um, pressure on Albanese to do that um, because he was part of the Friends for Assange group when he was in Parliament before the election. And since he's been the Prime Minister, he's done nothing. And can I tell a story, just to, as a contrast? Um, at the vigil, I met a gentleman, Con, who's a Greek-Australian, but in the 70s, he was a draft resistor. And he got arrested for being a draft resistor and for inciting other people to resist the draft. People tell me that the last two years have shown how fascist we are. Well, that was pretty fascist back then, right? He faced two years in jail. Um, and for a couple of years, he was unlawful. He had to, he had to hide in the hills. Uh, when Gough Whitlam got elected in 1972, his very first act on the very first day was to forgive all draft resistors in the Vietnam War. Just forgive them. In other words, be decisive and act. 
and the contrast to Albanese is extreme. Now, I want to play a clip here because in the last 12 hours, Julian Assange's wife, Stella, has appeared on Sky News, uh, the, the um, Piers Morgan show, to talk about his case and what she's trying to do. We're not going to play that. It was a 10-minute interview. But, Scott, but Piers Morgan got John Bolton on as well. I'm going to play the clip of what happens when John Bolton starts talking and you'll hear, his, you'll hear him justify what's being done to Assange and calling for more, but you'll hear Stella's response and it kind of speaks for itself. But I want people to listen to this and think about that it's come to this and I want to know what Albanese's response to this is, <laughs> to the fact that you've got a guy who should be in jail himself rubbing in Assange's wife's face that he could face 176 years in jail. What's the clip? OK. Ambassador Bolton, thank you very much for joining me, uh, first of all. Why is America so intent on bringing Julian Assange to unbelievably draconian justice of 175 years, i.e. the rest of his life in prison? Well, I think that's a small amount of the sentence he actually deserves. He's committed clear criminal activity. He's no more a journalist uh, than the chair I'm sitting on. Uh, the information that he divulged uh, did, in fact, put many people in jeopardy. Uh, it undercut the ability of the United States to have confidential diplomatic communications, not just with other foreign governments, but in many countries with dissidents, people who even speaking to American diplomats could find themselves in trouble. Uh, and so, you know, he, uh, he's been complaining about his treatment uh, over the past period of time. He's the one who sought asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, now he faces extradition to the United States. I, I presume he will get due process in the United Kingdom to determine whether extradition should go forward. And when he gets to the United States, he'll get due process here. And I hope he gets at least 176 years in jail for what he did. Stella? Well, of course, uh, Ambassador Bolton is kind of the ideological nemesis of Julian. He has, uh, during his time for the Bush administration and later the Trump administration, um, sought to undermine the international legal system, ensure that the U.S. is not under the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction. And if it was, uh, Mr. Bolton might, uh, in fact, uh, be prosecuted under the ICC. Uh, he was one of the chief cheerleaders of the Iraq War, which Julian then exposed through these leaks. So um, he has a conflict of interest here. Ambassador Bolton? <laughs> so let me say again, what is Anthony Albanese's response to that? What are you doing, Prime Minister? This is a that's one of the most single most vile human beings on the planet today. Don't give me this crap that we put up for 10 years. You know, Saddam was Hitler, Assad's a butcher, um, Putin's Hitler. Those guys, the worst they've ever done is a fraction of what that man is responsible for. There's a million dead Iraqis because of him and his cronies deliberately plotted lies to orchestrate a war and then a series of wars, right? He sh Trump, Trump blew the whistle on him, even though Trump gave him a job. Trump said there's never been a war John Bolton hasn't wanted to start. He would have he started a nuclear war over North Korea and China by now if he was allowed to. He is the scum of the earth. And he's on there, bold as brass, saying the man who exposed that whole crime should get 176 years in jail. Mm -hmm. And our prime minister has the power to call up and say, Liz Truss, we're your Australian ally. Let him out or all bets are off. 
cut the crap. I mean, it, don't, don't think it's complicated, people. It literally is that simple. Yep, just do Our it. relationship depends on you cutting the crap. That's what it takes. And Australians got to get mad because it's not just about Assange as a human rights issue. His existence in Belmarsh rotting there proves, and, and uh, Elbow's weakness proves we have no independence and sovereignty in this country. That's why we've got to force him to do the right thing. The only way you get your independence and sovereignty is you assert it. And we've got to put, if, if, if he was Scott Morrison, I wouldn't be saying this because Scott Morrison was scum. Albanese championed Assange. He has no excuse. We, the Australian people, have to shove a rod of steel up his spine and make him do the right thing. And so as more of these things happen, get involved. We have to send this weakling a message so he sends it to our allies. That's why we're doing this. All right. So I'm, I'm just, I got so mad because that woman, <laughs> right, who's, you know, Assange's wife, had to put up with that, thanks to bloody Sky yeah. News and Piers Morgan. Um, that's why people should be outraged. The real criminals are wandering around and the, 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 the truth tellers and the peacemakers are being persecuted. Yes. Now, on to another type of criminal for yeah, the white collar, white collar. I'll stay fired kind. up. <laughs> Just getting warmed up, eh? Yeah. So, bankers star in a tale of two reports. Now, um, I'm going to let you go through this, uh, Robbie. ASIC, firstly, is one of the reports. Yep. And secondly, the report of the Regional Banking Task Force. All right, well, let's, let's talk about ASIC. So, I... Um, uh, people are watching the show on YouTube, of course, and what they'll have noticed is the previous video was my interview of John Adams, the economist, about his report, the Adams Report. Remember that name, people. It'll go down in history. So we tell the full story in my interview. If you haven't watched it, make sure you do. But um, this is an update on that because as of today, which is uh, Thursday the 6th, John is getting a lot of publicity for his report, mm. and I wanted to um, highlight that. So, so essentially, I'll just, just just give you some examples. The ABC has covered it. Um, Economist alleges corporate watchdog ASIC is only investigating tiny proportion of complaints. And just to give you some flavour, they opened in 2014. The, this is by Dan Ziffer, and I'll play a clip from Daniel in a minute. In 2014, the boss of the nation's corporate watchdog said Australia was a paradise for white collar crime due to weak penalties. Economist John Adams' analysis of investigations by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission suggests things may have worsened. And there's a bit of an understatement. Um, anyway, they, they go through the details. The most important part of that ABC report is they show Senator Andrew Bragg, the Liberal, calling for an, saying that he supports an inquiry and Senator Louise Pratt from the Labor Party also supporting an inquiry. So the momentum for an inquiry is big. And um, a lot of people get cynical about inquiries because there seem to be plenty of them. What do they do? Well, we've been pushing them quite hard because we're in the post-Royal Commission era, right? And now we've got a new government. This will be the first inquiry into a finance-related matter post-Royal Commission in the new government. And when the Royal Commission was on, Labor couldn't say enough to please the people about how they would clean this up. This is the kind of inquiry that will put it before them on a platter. What are you going to do? Right. That's, this is where the public have to put the, um, the pressure on, which is which is quite important. Um, News.com.au covered it as well. ASIC slammed for investigating just one percent of alleged breaches, according to new report. And that's the that's the, the bottom line of John Adams um, report of ASIC's 
complaints handling process. 1%, less than 1%, 0.74% yes. mm. of, of complaints to ASIC get investigated. Um, and then they, both of these articles, but this one was, was quite interesting, they actually, the journalists go and get other people's um, points of view. And they clearly had no trouble, Elisa, finding people prepared to dump on ASIC because it is notorious. Mm. You either don't know about ASIC because you've never experienced, you've never had enough experience in the financial system to know about it, or if you do know about it, you know it's bad, universally bad, right? Um, so the Australian Restructuring, Insolvency and Turnaround Association CEO John Winter told news.com.au that the laws in place for corporate misconduct acted as a good deterrent, but the problem was they were never used. And this, this, is, this is the bottom line. So I want to, um, like I said, go and look at, at, at the show where we elaborate, where John gets to tell his own version of the event because um, some of this... John last year, John Adams participated in the Sterling First Inquiry, which we helped to get up, and he, he, he assisted in that, but he also learned things for that inquiry that he put to, to use in his own project, right? And then when he, got, when he achieved his own project, that was fine, but then he thought, man, this shouldn't be this hard, mm. right? So, so on that note, I want to play just as a... It's, it's really good when you get the media's attention like this, but again, it's, it's partly... I take my hat off to John. He's done a lot of work. Just watch this clip today uh, um, on ABC where the, the, the news host is questioning this journalist, Daniel Ziffer, about the Adams report. An economist claims corporate watchdog ASIC is only investigating a tiny proportion of complaints it receives. John Adams was an advisor to Liberal Senator Arthur Sinodinos and says the percentage of complaints that are investigated is less than 1%. ASIC disputes that figure. Joining me now is business reporter Dan Ziffer. Dan, g'day. So first off, explain for us exactly what ASIC does uh, and how many complaints they receive and what they do about it. So ASIC is the conduct regulator for Australian business. They're meant to keep everyone on the straight and narrow. They're called the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. So essentially, if you're a registered company or a listed company in Australia, you are under their remit. They look after you. They write, they run the corporate laws. Now, they receive around 10,000 complaints in an average year. And they say that about 35% of them are kind of investigated further. Many of them uh, lack evidence or they're not in the correct jurisdiction. Some of them are resolved with, say, a letter warning the company or further action. This analysis that has come from economist John Adams takes in a much broader remit of reports to ASIC. It takes in things like self-confessed breach reports from companies where companies say themselves that they've broken the law, uh, liquidators reports, reports from people who have financial services licenses. And what that does, that creates a much larger number of complaints. And when you divide that by the amount that actually go through to a full investigation where ASIC really undertakes to work out whether something has gone wrong, you're looking at less than 1%. That obviously has a big impact because 
investigations and prosecutions have a real deterrent effect. It's not just that they punish the person that has done something wrong. They deter other people from doing the wrong thing. So it's fine to have laws, but without enforcement of them, without investigation of them, and without prosecution of cases in particular industries, there is essentially a magnetic effect where more people realise there's less of a problem with breaking these laws and there's more of an inducement to do it. So go into a bit more detail for us on what this analysis shows. So this analysis shows that if you include all of the reports, not just the around 10,000 that come from the public every year, but also from uh, self-confession, breach reports, from liquidators, auditors, and other people who hold financial services licences, once you divide that by the number of actual investigations, actual things that go on to be investigated, you're looking at from complaints down to investigations, less than 1%. Now, ASIC uses a different methodology. They basically say they have an assessment process and that what Mr Adams is talking about is a full active investigation that might end in a prosecution. So either way, what you are seeing is that there are vastly more complaints than ASIC does take to full investigation. Uh, And there's a reason for that. It's really complicated and they have, in some ways, a very difficult case to prove. Now, one of the most recent examples was that ASIC dropped action against 10 unnamed senior executives and board members of Crown Resorts. From watching this program, you'd know in the past few years, a huge swirl of problems of law breaking and allegations of criminal and breaches of civil law in various inquiries and royal commissions. But ASIC didn't progress with an investigation into 10 unnamed uh, senior executives and board members, basically because they didn't think they would be successful at prosecution. ASIC is currently investigating the STAR and they're not updating that investigation, but they have been looking at them for six months. But to give you a sense of how difficult it is, John Adams, the economist who has done this analysis, did successfully submit a complaint to ASIC about a financial issue. It is being investigated. But he's an economist and the complaint was 600 pages long. (laughs) That's simply not something most consumers can do if they get into trouble with the business. So, Elisa, that's the kind of publicity that, I mean, the reason these journals like Daniel Ziffer, et cetera, and the people at news.com.au and then we expect some more coverage in the Financial Review, the reason they're paying attention is because, like I said, anyone who who knows this issue knows ASIC is a huge problem, right? And, And what do we call our show with John, our interview? A, if you don't um, uh, investigate crime, you can't be a tough cop on the beat. Mm. Something like that, whatever we called it. Um, that's the problem. ASIC calls itself a tough, tough cop on the beat mm. and doesn't investigate crime. Now, we said, we said Bankers Star in a tale of two reports. We said last year, the reason, there's a, this is not an accident that ASIC is so weak and ineffective. It's weakness and ineffectiveness that puts most Australians at risk of financial misconduct is because that weakness serves the big financial entities, namely the banks. And um, figures have come to my attention just in the last week that that in the last nine years, the banks donated $14 million to the Liberal Party and $9.5 million to the Labor Party. Mm. And they expect something for that. (laughs) They don't do it out of charity. Now, and that's a segue to the next report. Because what's the next report? The Regional Banking Task Force. Now, we spent the end of last year telling people, make, make submissions to this Regional Banking Task Force to get them to talk about a postal bank. 
So the Regional Banking Task Force has released its report. It's a pile of garbage. Um, it's so mealy-mouthed, it's not funny. I want to play a clip about that as well from the, the National Party leader, and I, and I especially want people to pay attention to the way the, um, uh, the, the, the news host characterises this report, because it's, because it's right. He saw what we saw. This report is basically saying we're not going to stop the banks from shutting branches, but they should notify people better when they do it, right? Right. You know, we, we can, we're no power over the banks at all. But what's the ex bank's excuse for shutting branches? Because they're not commercial enough. They're not profitable enough. Mm. That's their excuse. In other words, banks don't do anything out of charity. That's why you've got to pay attention to the donations to the political parties because they don't do anything out of charity. They expect something back from those donations and they get it in the form of these kinds of reports, mm. right? So the one thing that we tried to influence it on was the question of a, um, a postal bank. And I'll just flick to that part of the report. And, and the, the particular wording thereof, a number of, this is what it says, a number of submissions to the task force suggested making Australia post a bank. However, it is important to recognise that this would significantly duplicate the services already offered through bank at post. Uh, really? Um, we do want to, du by duplicate you mean have another competitor in there? Yes, that's the whole point. Such a, service, such a service may also lead to other banks not renewing their bank at post arrangements with Australia Post, reducing consumer choice in rural areas. The whole region, the reason you had a regional banking task force is because banks were already doing that without having to compete with a public bank. If they had to compete with a public bank, it would stop them from shutting branches because they would realise, oh, we can't just shut branches and tell people go digital and, or go to Australia Post and bank with us. We will lose them as customers to that bank. It will stop them. That was the New Zealand experience, and these people wanted to deny that that will be the Australian experience. Um, and then this was the kicker. There are likely to be other issues around making Australia post a bank. It would raise significant competitive neutrality concerns, brackets, as the new bank would be government-backed. <laughs> Boo-hoo-hoo. It would be unfair competition for the banks. Now, this regional banking task force, Elisa, was stacked with bankers. Yeah. In other words, this was supposed to look at the impact of the bank's actions on regional Australia and they made it about them. Oh, we can't have unfair competition. Yes, you can. You had it for 84 years from 1912 to 1996 when the Commonwealth Bank was in existence. We've had 25 years without it. The norm is you bastards having to compete with a public bank. Get used to it. We're going to bring it back. Stop your whinging. Mm. They want it all their own way. Right, but let's just listen to um, a sign we're making progress. I want to play this clip from uh, Tuesday, where the uh, uh, ABC uh, interviewed David Littleproud, the current National Party leader, um, on the question of the Regional Banking Task Force report. And note his reference to the licensed post offices. Just watch the clip. All right, one that goes to your listening tour of regional Australia. Late on Friday, I think it was, the government released a task force report that looked at regional bank branch closures. I think it had originally been ordered up by your government when in power. It's basically arguing for more consultation and advance notice before branches go ahead and do this. Are you satisfied with the recommendations and, you know, the government's apparent endorsement? of it, along with the Bankers Association? 
Yeah, I think there's more that can be done. And in fact, we had conversations with the ABA and I think a pivotal role that can be played in this is also the licensed post offices uh, around the country in that we provide much of the banking services, the availability of cash. And you've got to understand that's the most important thing in some of the regional and remote communities is availability of cash. It's not just a matter once a branch is shut that you, you hop on a bus and you go to the next suburb and there's a branch there. Uh, there's hundreds of kilometres away and particularly for the elderly, this is a real challenge and they need a point of trust that they, they interact with in terms of getting cash in with their bank. And I've had conversations with Anna Bly, who's been very constructive, I've got to say, uh, and the banks about making sure we look to a model, a new model, of giving a service in regional rural Australia that brings in those licensed post offices that are looking for money, that make sure that they're adequately paid for it. But this may be an opportunity to look differently and be constructive, and that's what the National Party wants to do, is to come up with practical solutions that will support regional Australia as technology obviously moves in certain ways, but we, we need to make sure we bring everyone with us and we're able to continue to provide many of those services that are important in regional Australia in new ways. And, yep. and we shouldn't be afraid to do that. Uh, and I think this is an opportunity for the government and the nationals and even the banking association to work constructively to get an outcome on this one. Yeah, it sounds like there's a willingness to do that. Now, so the, the positive and negative there, Elisa, the positive is he went out of his way to reference the licensed post office because... As people might know, they're our allies in this fight for a postal bank. These politicians, if they're smart, or if at least they're not stupid, they know that they need to be on side with the licensed post offices, that the licensed post offices are pushing hard for this. But David Littleproud himself is a banker. <laughs> he is a banker. So when he's saying, oh, how constructive Anna Bly is, well, Anna Bly is from the Banking Association, right? Yeah. He's part of the, he's just saying, well, you know, our bankers club, or we're going to work constructively together. He doesn't want to go to a postal bank, but he knows that he's going to have to del deliver something for the licensed post offices. Um, so, in other words, he may be reluctant, but he's reaching in that direction. Our job is to push him hard in that direction. Mm. And so the, the next, one of the other things, that just to report my last comment on this, um, is uh, the last few weeks we've been pushing this petition parliamentary petition by Dale Webster, the independent journalist. Um, it, it actually accelerated. Now, bear in mind, Dale was informed um, a week after it went live on the parliament. Now, the parliament didn't inform her. They'd put up the petition and it went live. So we were behind the eight ball trying to get signatures on this, right? But we started publicising it. It got um, nearly 1,000 signatures just in the last 48 hours. Mm. But, the, but it closed last night, so it's nearly, it nearly got to 5,000. We were all surprised it got to 4,000 with the time we had. We nearly got to 5,000. That signature is not going to, that petition is not going to change the world. What it's going to do is because it's a formal one on the Parliament's website, the Treasurer must write a formal response to it. And he has already been forced to set up a bit of a task force in his office to deal with Dale Webster's uh, work on the Regional right. Banking Task Force. So this is going to be a continuation of that. And what that petition calls for is a moratorium on bank closures, um, uh, a new inquiry, and presciently... Pulping that report. <laughs> ...to scrap the Regional <laughs> Banking Task Force report. So I've done it for you, Dale. That's <clears throat> what we need the government to do. The rest um, of them. And make sure that we actually look at this <clears throat> more seriously because this is white hot. This week we, we emailed... Four and a half thousand local councils around Australia with mm. this issue of a postal bank, and we're starting to get their feedback. Oh, the response now. is brilliant. Yeah. I mean, yeah, people are really keen. People, no, it's a, it's a, it's what's driving this issue. 
we are going to drive this issue all the way to forcing these banks back to compete with the public banks. Yeah. Now, another reason why we urgently need a public post office bank is because the entire financial system is going to need restructuring. And if you haven't been living under a rock, you will know that in the last couple of weeks, if not longer, but particularly these last couple of weeks, uh, the global financial situation has been red, red hot. It is coming down around our ears. And if you don't want to get your savings and investments bailed in, you need to have your deposits, you need to have your funding in a public bank that can be protected. And we don't have that. So some of the updates, um, Credit Suisse, people would have been hearing about, they had a 60% loss in the value of their shares over the last year. Um, just in this last period, the risk of a bond default is shooting up through the roof. Uh, there's all kinds of rumours that they're about to collapse or have to be forced to do a merger. Um, Deutsche Bank is in pretty much the same boat and has perpetually been so on the edge. They've had a 40% share loss over the last year. Again, their risk of uh, bond default is spiking. They have been um, slated by the IMF as the most important net contributor to systemic risk in the world. So now it looks like Deutsche <clears throat> and Credits. Swiss are racing each other to see who, who really will be the next yeah. Lehman Brothers. and these are two very big global banks. You know, you don't yeah. have those, one or more of those kind of banks go down and not impact the whole system they're globally. Sorry, they're called GCIFIs, Globally Systemically Important Financial Institutions. It was a designation of 30 banks that they came up with after the global financial crash. Mm. These are the, the 30 banks that they said the crash of any one of these banks could bring down the system like yeah, Lehman Brothers. That's right. Both of these are... Such, yeah. Now, this is happening against the background of what we discussed last week on the shock created by the announcement of the mini budget in the United Kingdom that they were going to do all kinds of tax cuts and so forth, of which they didn't have the funding in order, uh, causing a collapse of the pound, a bond crisis. The number of big British pension funds were on the verge of collapse and could have sparked, um, again, a systemic meltdown through the whole system, which the Bank of England acknowledged, and they were forced to intervene with a massive bond purchase. Um, since we talked about that a week ago, the government was forced to backflip on some of, some of its most extreme pledges in that mini-budget, such as uh, ditching the top rate of tax altogether. Um, and so, yeah, and that's caused impacts back on Australia, I might add, because British institutions started selling the um, mortgage-backed securities, securities from Australian and, mortgages. Yeah, that's right. That they purchased from here. So we've had um, the the sales going on here in Australia affecting our banks. Um, <clears throat> even the ABC said that this whole situation could unleash a death spiral, and this is happening in Europe, where um, they've just been facing, as we've reported recently, an energy shock, where because of the speculation in energy market derivatives. There's $1.5 trillion sitting there of which some of these big energy firms were being forced to make margin calls on some of these bets. Um, so the whole thing is teetering on the edge. Um, the European Systemic Risk Board has just made its first ever warning saying, you know, of a systemic danger, sharp asset price falls, liquidity strains and underlying all of this um, fluff at the top, which is exploding, you have the breakdown of the real physical economy typified by the energy crisis. 
Uh, and when you have things like the uh, recent sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipelines blocking <coughs> the only American. conduit for an increase of, <coughs> of uh, gas coming through, and obviously Russia, it's not in their interest to do it because they're happy to supply the gas um, if the, um, you know, the, the, uh, they had, had to have been um, servicing if and so forth of the gas facilities because, you know, there were yeah. issues with certain things that had been holding it up. But, yeah, under improving uh, situation with the de-escalation, of course, they want to see a future where they can keep selling Ru gas Rus to Russia, Europe. Russia was <coughs> hoping that the um, the Europeans would realise, as winter set in, that they need Russian gas and they better stop playing hardball over Ukraine. Um, and so now we're supposed to believe that Russia has blown up its own gas lines mm. just to make sure that can never happen, right? Uh, it, it's clearly not Russia that's done it, and we've covered that in our magazine this week. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you're feeding into a situation where the population are already up in arms. They've got austerity. They're being told to take less showers and rug up more because the air conditioning's got to be kept at a lower level, etc. Um, so and within this climate of war, blaming Russia for everything, this is creating a dangerous um, front, front, really. Now, of course, President Putin, the Russian president, gave a speech on the 30th of September, which I wanted to reference because, and this was where he talked about the annexation of the Donetsk, Lugansk, Kherson and Zaporozhye regions. But what, and of course the media don't cover this sort of thing. Again, you can read excerpts in our Australian Alert Service and I urge people to actually read this speech to see the real point of crisis the world is in right now which I think most world leaders from the Western countries really would have no idea. I mean, they're just sleepwalking into World War III. Putin is very well aware that we're at that brink and he's prepared to negotiate if the you know, willingness comes from the other side. But one of the things he made explicit is that the current order, financial, economic order, strategic order, is finished. It's over because there's enough countries not just Russia, but most of the world, in fact, that are saying, that's it, we've had it with this Anglo-American dominated world order. Yeah. Um, and on that point, I want to go over into the next uh, subject area um, to discuss more on that war front. What are we defending in Ukraine? It's not democracy. Um, so what we want to talk about here is to give uh, a somewhat comprehensive sweep of events that have led us to this point um, for people to think through quite seriously because we are not defending democracy, rules or a rules-based no. order or freedom in any way, shape or form by supporting Ukraine, by sending them arms right now. In fact, we are supporting quite the opposite. So we just want to go through a bit of detail and lay this out so that you see what's happening on the ground. Um, now, of course, we're not going to go back through all of the history, but just starting from the so-called Maidan coup in 2014, um, which was, of course, when the government, the elected government of Ukraine was overthrown after the then Prime Minister uh, delayed signing off on an agreement to uh, join a European Union Association agreement, which not only implied agreements on the economic side of things, but also strategic agreements that were seen to be leading towards uh, Ukraine coming into NATO and so forth. So from that point of that coup, you began to have Nazi paramilitary leaders parachuted into key positions in the government. And we 
we've action. seen, we've showed on the, on the show before how American leaders um, made that happen and, and said, this is who we want in power and so forth. Yeah, and actual, we're talking about actual Nazis. Don't yeah. kid yourself, actual Nazis. Yeah, people that have a lineage in supporting Hitler and so forth, if you trace it through. At that point, um, other languages and cultures other than Ukrainian were banned. Russian language publications were banned. Um, since then, and this has happened over a period of time, you've had workers' rights abolished. Um, there were new laws brought in in August, removing union membership uh, and collective bargaining for around 70% of workers. Union property can now be seized. The British Foreign Office was consulted on all of this. So this is not just something they're doing on their own. We've seen opposition political parties across the spectrum, anyone that's not the existing party in power being banned. People voting in any of the referenda have been threatened with 13 years in prison. People trying to flee to the eastern parts that are not controlled by Ukraine have been killed. We're seeing an incredible um, level of censorship, including with hit lists and kill lists. So people being targeted for assassination, we'll go through some of the details on that. And I just wanted to mention too that um, the Foreign Minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, called out the level of racism um, going on, um, you know, the kind of uh, philosophical racism and um, exclusion of anything outside of, you know, the Ukrainian. Anglo, the Anglo-Saxon, Anglo broadly as well, the Anglo-Saxon world. Yeah. In his speech at the United Nations General Assembly, uh, he went through some more of the history, such as the um, after the 2014 coup, the dozens of trade unionists who'd opposed the coup being burnt to death, um, the murders of various political figures and journalists, he gave their names because they were supportive of Russia after yeah. that period. Yeah. In 2015, the Prime Minister Yatsenyuk calling Donbass residents non-humans, Zelensky uh, later called them creatures. Uh, the glorification of the killing of Russians, you know, leaders saying, oh, the more Russians we kill, the better, because there'll be less for our sons and daughters to kill later. You know, that kind of um, outright racism. That's we're, talking about, <coughs> we're talking about all this before this year. Yeah. That's the point. This, mm. this is what led to this war. <clears throat> now, I want to go now into the banning of political parties and give some details on that. In May 2022, the Ukrainian Ministry of Justice launched cases against 16 opposition parties that are said to justify or glorify the actions of Russia. So they were able to make moves to ban these 16 parties under amendments that had been made to the law that were passed through the parliament. Um, those law, that new law was retroactively applied to earlier statements and actions made by those political parties, you know, supporting in support of Russia and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, of course, the retrospective application of law is something that is a big no-no. And in, the in, big infamous case of that was the prosecution of the Dutch con communist who set fire to the Reichstag in 1933. And in 2008, there was a German ruling that overturned his conviction um, he'd been condemned to death under a law that was adopted after the incident happened. We should say the Dutch communist who was accused of setting fire to the Reichstag, Elisa. The real, the real arson was probably a guy named Hermann Goering. But 
Anyway, well, at least it was yeah, yeah. organised. Right. <laughs> Whoever they used was the Patsy. Yeah. Um, now, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights says this, no one should be held guilty of any criminal offence on account of any act which did not constitute a criminal offence at the time when it was committed. And the Ukraine is a signatory of that. Now, so far, well, the, some of the parties, just to mention the bigger ones that have been banned, there are 16, as I said, is the opposition platform for life, which held 44 seats in the parliament when it was suspended. The Socialist Party of Ukraine, one of the largest parties with a large block of seats in the parliament, was banned. The Party of Sheree, which is a smaller party, but evidence was the evidence used to ban them was an interview by the party leader, which he did five years before he founded the party. <laughs> The other party which we want to go into a little bit more detail on is the Progressive Socialist Party of Ukraine, a 25-year-old political party. And we'll focus on them because uh, we have worked and collaborated over numerous decades with the founders of this party, two former members of parliament, economist Dr Natalia Petrenko, who also ran for president and got 11% of the vote in 1999, I might add, and her colleague Vladimir Marchenko. Now, since the 2014 Maidan coup, their party has been blocked procedurally from running in elections. Basically, they had to go back and remove any positive references to the Soviet period of Ukraine from their official documentation, which they did. But their filings to re-register as a party were then blocked repeatedly afterwards and deliberately. In 2016, their office was seized it was raided and then it was seized by members of the Azov Battalion. Which is the neo-Nazi <coughs> faction of the Ukrainian, <coughs> Ukrainian army. And uh, Natalia and Vladimir personally were attacked and barricaded in their apartments by black-shirted members of National Cause and those related paramilitary groups. We'll put up pictures in the background while we're going through this. In 29, the 2019 election, they couldn't run because, as I said, they were being blocked this whole time. But more than 4 million people living in the Donbass were also blocked from voting because, again, they were considered not human, basically. In 2022, so this year, earlier this year, um, the PSPU party was formally banned in court without defendants or legal counsel present. So this was because their bank accounts had all been blocked as part of, you know, the, the process of blocking their political party and they couldn't pay court fees, they couldn't pay for lawyers and yeah. they were blocked from any access to defend themselves. They submitted 19 motions to remove false evidence or just to have their statements accepted, putting their statement on the record, all of which were denied. There were gross violations of the presumption of innocence. The Ministry of Justice declared them anti-Ukrainian and supporters of Russian aggression without a shred of evidence. And you can see, I'll put up some coverage in a um, regional uh, Ukrainian uh, publication called Chesno, which means honestly, which shows the kind of smear attack. You can see the images of how they've presented Natalia Vitrenko here, um, one of which you see in the background her image is uh, in front of this bloodied concrete wall with a gun sights in the corner. Now, um, Vladimir and Natalia appealed these decisions to the Supreme Court of Justice and we've just got the news in the last week that that appeal was rejected and they became the fourth political party to be permanently banned 
after having appealed it, so there's no recourse. Um, we'll put up a video of the courthouse. We'll just show a little bit of this. And you, you can't understand it, so we'll keep talking as it's in the background. But you can see here, um, so this is at their appeal, the windows had been stuffed with pillows and so forth to make this dramatic scene that there could be a terrorist attack at any moment at these Violent people had to be yes. party, had to be banned. It's like, it's like uh, Hannibal Lecter inside, <laughs> put, the, put the mask on him and whatever, and they're treating him like that, you know, spook everybody. When I've met these people, at least, that they just polit polit political activists like you would Yeah, met. like us, exactly. Now, they had to represent themselves because remember, they, their bank accounts are blocked, they couldn't pay for a lawyer. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Vladimir spoke, he had only 20 minutes allotted because this was uh, labelled a fast-track proceeding to get this all done. They've got lots of political parties to ban. Um, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> they, they do. That's not, that's a, we're laughing, now, but it's not a joke. In do. an analysis of the court papers from those hearings, violations have been revealed of the Ukrainian Constitution, of the U European Convention on Human Rights, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, guidelines on prohibition and dissolution of political parties, and analogous measures. And that's an EU Commission document. But these are all things that Ukraine has is signatory to, they've signed off on. Um, Natalia made a statement um, after these events saying the motive for their banning is political. They've opposed joining NATO, joining the European Union. These things were cited by the Ministry of Justice. Um, they've opposed making heroes of Nazi collaborators in the form of the Organisation of Ukrainian Nationalists. Uh, and the SBU, the Ukrainian intelligence, admitted that themselves in a 1993 finding that they were fascist collaborators. Um, also, the PSPU program, economic program, is pro-sovereignty. It's opposed to speculation. It has a whole platform of economic development similar to what we represent here. So, yeah, the question as we posed it is, if there is no democracy in Ukraine, what are NATO and its allies defending? Um, and I want to say that Natalia, in a speech two days after that coup back in 2014, said this. She said, I ask you, and this was in Europe at a conference, I ask you, what use does the EU have for Nazis in power in Ukraine? Is it not understood that civil war in Ukraine will develop more and more? And she talked about, even at that point, that Ukraine has 15 nuclear power plants, which could be of a danger, chemical plants, gas pipelines, that interruption of which would be disastrous. Mm -hmm. She said, do they really not realise that this neo-Nazi regime will provoke a conflict with Russia? She demanded an immediate new presidential election. But she said, if presidential elections are held on the Maidan's terms and under a dictatorship of the right sector, then Ukraine will get a Fuhrer. And then with a neo-Nazi parliament and a neo-Nazi government, the creation of a neo-Nazi state in the centre of Europe will have been completed. Uh, and those words should, you know, really make you nervous because that's exactly what we've got. <clears throat> well, and that's why they've banned her because um, she's a Ukrainian patriot, but she doesn't hate Russia. She hates these Nazis who've taken over her country, backed up by the United States and the United Kingdom, and so they've got to shut her down. This is 
what they call Ukrainian democracy. It is not democracy. Mm, exactly. Now, finally, I want to discuss the hit lists and the kill lists, and people probably would have heard about this, but um, firstly, there's the Centre for Countering Disinformation's blacklist. This is uh, put together under Ukraine's National Security and Defence Council, and it intersects numerous Anglo-American-backed operations about going on about disinformation and managing disinformation since 2014, um, linked into things like operations like the 77th Brigade and the Five Eyes. Um, but this particular list was prepared for and released at an international roundtable which received funding from the US State Department. And I might add it's unlawful for a US agency to fund an agency that censors US citizens. And there's many of them on this list. Uh, the list includes, it's only foreigners, so not Ukrainians. It's made up of over 95 journalists, academics, politicians, military leaders, activists from 200, uh, from 22 countries, labelled Kremlin propagandists, information terrorists. Um, and it says that information terrorists are responsible for crimes against humanity and anyone associated in any way. So even if you're just the cameraman or the editor helping get that disinformation out, you're culpable, a financier, an accomplice, and you can be tried for war crimes. And what they're talking about there are the, there's journalists on the Russian side of the fighting and who went there to, um, uh, what are they call election inspectors, mm. right? That's who they're talking about. They're, they're claiming we have the right to kill them. Yeah. Um, the list was actually taken down in August under huge pressure, but it's just been put up. The person in the number one top position is one of our collaborators, Helga Zeppelarouche, the head of the International Schiller Institute. It includes now a head of state, the president of Uganda, Museveni. There's new journalists that have been added, including Fox News's Tucker Carlson. There's US Senator Rand Paul, former Representative Tulsi Gabbard. Um, and some of the things that they're accused of doing are asserting that Russia did not shoot down Malaysian MH17 flight, um, asserting that the BRICS countries are ready to face the economic warfare of the West, or that Ukrainian attacks on Crimea might lead to World War III. So this is all what they cite on their website. Yeah, so if you're, <clears> if, you're a, an, if you're a Western political commentator like Helga LaRouche, and you say the BRICS countries are ready to face the economic warfare of the West... Yeah. That, can, that qualifies to get you killed on this hit, kill list. And if they begin to apply this kind of thing, which they will, to China, and I'll come back to that in a minute, we'll yeah. be right in the middle of it. Um, now, there's another um, kill list, which is even more serious, called the Mirotvorets list, and it's compiled by a website in Ukraine called Peacemaker, and this has been going since 2014, putting out hit orders. There's thousands of entries on this website it's been linked by a French investigation to Ukrainian intelligence. Yep. Um, what, and we'll put up images of this because it's pretty um, spine-chilling. You can see um, the entry for the Russian television commentator Daria Dugina, who was assassinated on the 20th of August, marked liquidated. Um, the New York Times just put out an article saying that US officials have stated that the Ukrainian government authorised the assassination of Dugina. So the fact that they're saying this is very significant, they're basically admitting inadvertently that the US and NATO are explicitly supporting a terrorist state, yep. i.e. a state that kills a civilian in her home country. 12 of the other um, 341 journalists on this list have been killed. 
um, such as Ukrainian writer Olez Buzina. You can also see the entry from the site of the Ukrainian Member of Parliament, Alexei Kovalev, who was killed and his girlfriend in their home. By the way, this website actually publishes home addresses of people. It has geolocation information, so there can be a collaborative effort to hunt down and kill these people. Uh, many, many others have received death threats. Their bank accounts have been seized. The list includes 327 children. One example is this girl, Faina Savankova, who's 13 from the Lugansk region. Uh, the reason she's on there is she made a video appeal to the United Nations to stop the war in the Donbass. There's another girl who's only on there because her parents holidayed in Crimea. That's too pro-Russian. Um, now, there's been uh, efforts to replicate this um, in Germany. The European Union has put together a version called the Defence of Democracy Package to expose and punish people who, quote, spread propaganda from autocratic regimes. That implies China as well. Yep. Um, the European Commission President uh, Ursula von der Leyen compared this to screening foreign direct investment for security reasons. So why wouldn't we screen information like we screen investment. Um, in the US they've had efforts to set up this dis disinformation governance board which was quickly terminated. We reported on that but it continues in the background. There's other efforts. Jacinda Ardern at the United Nations um, General Assembly called for the creation of a global censorship system to prevent disinformation. And she specifically cited the Russia-Ukraine conflict as an example of the disinformation. And because she would, because everything you've <clears throat> If, if she had her way, Australian viewers and New Zealand viewers would not be able to listen to everything you've just gone through for the, most of the show. Yeah, and you wouldn't be any the wiser. This week, ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, has a report out exposing false narratives generated by China in regard to the Solomon Islands, calling on the government to train journalists and fund research on disinformation and to block disinformation from social media. Right, so where are we going? This is not democracy. This is not some rules-based order that we want to be defending. No, that's right. It's not democracy. So whatever else you might think, um, when, you're, when you're told that we've got to give all this support to Ukraine because we're standing up for a democracy against an autocracy, it's just rubbish, right? This is much more, much bigger than that. And in fact, um, Paul Keating today, on the one thing that we do agree with him on, has a, has a series of articles and pearls and irritations reminding people how he warned that the expansion of uh, NATO, he warned in the 90s that the expansion of NATO would lead to a war effectively, mm, mm -hmm. right, like we've got now. And any reasonable person was always saying that. It's got nothing to do with democracy. You've been told it's about we're defending a democracy. It's rubbish. This is a brutal Nazi state now in Ukraine. But for the... For the um, for the people in the Donbass, it's been like that for eight years, mm. right? And that's why there's, that's a, right. there's a war front there. And why they're, um, you know, happy to return to be part of Russia in the main part. Yeah. Um, so, yes, don't believe the lies. It's leading us to the verge of war. You can help us diffuse the situation by getting involved and um, do contact us for a copy of this week's alert service, which has a lot more information on that. We'll have more in coming weeks. Uh, you can, we'll put some links below as well where you can find out more on our website uh, and you can subscribe to get it get the information regularly and help disseminate it yep and um
back to the first topic, stay in touch with, stay involved with the campaigns to clean up this banking system. So stay tuned for updates on the, on the Postal Bank campaign. But also have a look on our website for the press release we did today about the John Adams report. Um, and you can help get an inquiry up by calling the numbers that we list, the, the names of the people that we list there mm. to encourage them to do that. Yeah. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Alyssa. See you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.